Welcome to Open Plaza Talks, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. Today we bring you a conversation between Reverend Dr. Loida Martel and Reverend Dr. Ivan Martinez about complicated grief in extraordinary times. For more information about today's episode, please visit us at htiopenplaza.org. Saludos to another episode of Open Plaza. Uh, uh, saludos a toda mi gente who are listening. Uh, my name is uh, Reverend Dr. Loida Martel, and I am the Vice President for Academic Affairs and Dean at Lexington Theological Seminary in Kentucky. And today with me, I have the pleasure of having a good colleague and friend, the Reverend Dr. Yvonne Martinez Thorne, who is the founder and CEO of Cultivating Wholeness Counseling Associates. This is a, a, a practice that has uh, sites in Pennsylvania and Florida, and it is a faith-based practice that provides specialized services for ordained clergy and lady leaders. Yvonne is herself an ordained minister in the American Baptist uh, churches. And we are so happy to have you with us today, Yvonne. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure, Loida. And always with your generous heart, you know, you always find a way to invite your Latinas to <laughs> these extraordinary moments with you. So thank you. Thank you. And, and it's, uh, it, we're, we're here because uh, Yvonne and I actually started a conversation on our own. And we thought that we would open up this conversation um, about a grieving and complicated grief uh, in extraordinary times. And in particular, we were talking about how grief was affecting us uh, during the time of pandemic with so much losses. Um, and this, this conversation actually started because I started sharing with you, uh, Yvonne, uh, this article that I had been writing um, on emergent diseases and, and, um, and novel coronavirus and how I had been uh, changing the numbers, right? And uh, yeah. I, I had started uh, writing about how, you know, first we had 10,000 people affected and 10,000 turned 20,000. And, yeah. and, and monthly I was changing these numbers. And suddenly, uh, particularly last January, mm -hmm. I found myself changing these numbers, not monthly, not even weekly, but actually daily. Yes. And, and I remember that within a few months of the pandemic, um, people were amazed. I remember uh, by, by the first, by um, uh, uh, late, uh, a Memorial Day weekend of last year, mm -hmm. people were amazed that we had hit this 100,000 uh, marker, right? Um, and, right? And people were in such grief over that. So for me, it was it was amazing that um, we we not only passed that one hundred thousand mile marker. I remember when we passed the two hundred thousand mile marker, yes. and here we are today um, with um, the the uh, the World Health Organization re reporting that in the world there is three point two million people dead. That in the United States alone, uh, we have um, over 404,000 people dead. In fact, I believe that as of April, 
we have over 578,000 uh, people dead with 32 million cases in the United States alone. And, and when I think about those numbers, when, when I think about the fact that in, in, a, in a little bit over a year, Yes. That we have 500,000 mm -hmm. people less on this planet mm -hmm. than a year ago. Yes. Um, I am so overcome with grief, right? And, and, in, and, in, and especially around Christmas time mm -hmm. um, and in January when we had the big surge and we started losing people. Yes. At the same time, there were people dying mm -hmm. of other things. And it was around the anniversary of my father's death. Mm -hmm. And I had somebody close to me die. Mm -hmm. And I got so overcome with grief mm -hmm. that I could barely function. And I remember I called you yes. and I said these things to you. And you, you talked to me about something called complicated Grief. Uh, grief. So can, can you explain to us what that is? What is complicated grief? I shall, Loida, but the part of me that um, wants to say to you, I want to at least begin by saying that you represent all of us in what you've just said. That um, if you're a, a human being on this earth, if you're a servant, if you're a, a person who's in any kind of care of others, you are going to respond with compassion, you know, and you're going to respond in grief. It's a natural response. Um, however, complicated grief is not your natural grief. And, um, and so I want to define that. And complicated grief is known in different ways. It could be called prolonged grief. Even sometimes it's also equated with traumatic grief. grief. And what it is, is that it's when normal grief persists. In other words, it's a chronic condition it then converts to unremitting, which means it, it, it's continuous, it's prolonged, and it can develop disruptive symptoms that actually interfere with our personal life, with our roles in life, and in our relationships. And so this complicated grief is something that we are all going through. You know, the, the, the figures have been that, let's say in general, if someone experiences something extraordinary, a loss in their life, I'd say maybe about five to 20% of the people, it will actually convert into complicated grief. But we are all going through complicated grief. And by complicated, I would say, it really comes out of this chronicity of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a existing with such multiple losses over a span of time. And even when we try to live in hope, that hope still, we're having to do that, not necessarily hoping and we just know it's going to turn out okay because there's so much different information coming in that's inaccurate and that sort of thing. There's nothing sure about what's going on right now. And so we are in this prolonged state of grief that becomes complicated. And I would say to you that not everyone deals with complicated grief the same way. I mean, there's some people that actually can deal with it and they're okay with it after a period of time but it depends on your history with, with trauma in your life, your history with losses. For example, the people in Puerto Rico who had just sustained Hurricane Maria a few, a few years ago, then they had the terremotos, right? And now they have COVID 
And those people have dealt with traumatic loss for such a sustained period of time that their sense of grieving is quite profound. And probably they're showing a lot of symptoms that um, they themselves can't understand as people of faith, right? After all, God, if God's there, you shouldn't be feeling this way. And yet it's very real and we need to identify it as such and we need to know how to deal with it so that we can still do what we're doing in life. Can, can you mention what some of those symptoms are? <clears throat> Absolutely, yes. Um, for example, one symptom would be that you intensely yearn for what was lost, all right? For what has passed away, either daily or to a disabling degree. It's always on your mind. You're constantly, constantly working it in your, in your thoughts. Um, there's also a, a social isolation and withdrawal that happens in your life. And it's so easy to do that in times of COVID right now. We are suffering from social isolation. Also, there's difficulty sleeping. We all now experience problems with sleeping. You know, I mean, we are unable to rest, you know, and we also experience nightmares. There's also this inconsolable emotional pain that happens, even crying. I have to tell you that even myself and early on as a psychologist, I needed to be able to develop a way of coping long-term. And so I introduced in my own professional life where every three months I take a week off because I knew that I was experiencing some low depression. I knew that. And that was early on when we first started with the lockdown. We're talking about a long-term situation. 15 months later, we're in the middle of something, possibly if we're fortunate to say in the middle, it may not even be in the middle. It's just continual. Um, you also lose your appetite. Um, you're also weary. Your soul is weary. That's another symptom of complicated grief. Feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. I, I'm glad you said that because I, I, <laughs> I find myself every once in a while just out of the clear blue, just, I just start crying. And, and I remember that when my father died, I would do that, right? Mm -hmm. And then I stop and think, my, why am I crying? You know, why? I cry over sad movies now. I, I mean, I just, I, um, but, but here's, an, I think, something else that is now occurring. Um, I remember that, uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Puerto Rico. I remember uh, when uh, Hurricane Maria happened in Puerto Rico. And I believe this happened recently in the Bahamas. And I know you were in the Bahamas when they had their natural disaster with hurricanes Hurricane as well. Yeah. Um, uh, this, is, this has happened with natural disasters. And I believe um, we have actually seen this and documented this now uh, with, with, uh, with novel coronavirus, that there is what has been called uh, something called excess deaths. Uh, I, I think there's a sense of people that there's death all around, right? There's all this death. And, and I, I think it's more than just a sense of death all around, that there's actually a phenomenon called excess deaths. That is to say that there, there is not only the spike of deaths due to the novel coronavirus, there's also been a spike of deaths uh, taking place for other reasons other than the novel coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so just uh, at, at least as of March um, uh, 2020, 
the CDC reported that there were 574,000 more deaths Amazing. than normal Amazing. over and above wow. than what we should have expected. There was like a 20% spike overall in the United States. And when they broke it down state by state, mm -hmm. there were certain states that had, uh, like Arizona, a 32% spike. Mm -hmm. um, New Jersey had like a 28% spike. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for me, what really stood out was New York City that had a 58% spike um, overall. And so what these deaths were people who were dying of things that might have been survivable yes. or may not have been survivable. But the thing is, they couldn't get to medical attention mm -hmm. because these were the times in which the hospitals were overrun with, with COVID cases or, or people didn't dare get to medical attention mm -hmm. because they were afraid to go out. So people dying, for example, of high blood pressure or yeah. dying of a heart attack yeah. or, you know, dying of appendicitis, things yeah. that, that could easily have been treatable. That's right. Um, so there's this sort of sense that we're, we're living in a cult of death, right? In a culture of death, yes. that sort of death has permeated everything. Right. Um, and then you sort of add to that, that there are certain rituals of death and yeah. Uh, what's happening in India, I, I read recently that there are certain rituals of death mm -hmm. that allow them to process. Yes. And I think that's true of us too. Yes. Um, we, yes. we, we can't gather uh, the, nor the way we normal do. We, we right. can't, right? We can't share meals. We can't tell our stories. Right. Um, so, so what do you recommend? Um, how what do you say to particularly to caregivers, for example, um, who have been taking care of these people and, and suddenly they're at a loss? Mm -hmm. How do you how do you how do you help them process right, right. In, in these times? Right. It's a great question, Loida, and there's no perfect answer, but what I can tell you is that what you're describing is a real collective grief that we're all experiencing you know, that we're seeing in front of us, even if we don't personally experience it ourselves, we experience it vicariously, you know, the people that we care about, it's what we see in the media, it's what's being constantly talked about. Um, and so what I would say is that what COVID did for us, and I'm going to still add racism, right, as well, that's another pandemic that's been going on. At the same time, this twinning impact of pandemics um, is that we've been going from grief to grief in grief. This pandemic of COVID-19 plus the pandemic of racism has ushered us into this journey of living grief. It pulsates, it doesn't stop, it's continual. And so the first thing I would say is that I think we need to really be able to, um, first of all, acknowledge this reality, that we are in a journey of grief and mind you, a journey of grief, and we're in uncharted waters. That's why I call these extraordinary times. And we don't have a compass, and we don't have a manual to deal with this. And so we're entering into this. It's been prolonged. There's a chronicity to it. And so you have to acknowledge, this is where I am. 
this is where I am. And in some ways, that's the probably the most important thing you could do for yourself. I know that as, as um, caregivers and as pastors, oftentimes, one of the hardest things for pastors is to recognize that they're in need themselves. You know, I have as a, a practice with clergy, you know, I mean, some of it is about God, if I have enough faith, I shouldn't be feeling this way. And guess what? It is so important to recognize that that kind of thinking is in a way tipping into a little bit of pridefulness because the truth is, if ever there's a time we need God in this moment to really give us a new vision is right now. We need to be able to recognize that we need that help. That's one thing. This is where I am. I'm really in need right now. And um, the other thing is that you also recognize that in, in addition to your going through it, you are also being asked to walk alongside of your people that you are serving within multiple, multiple grief as well. So that having that understanding, that means that you can't possibly deal with all of that grief. But what you can try to do is that you can deal with it from a place of hope. Our old ways of dealing with loss, Lord, you know, that cruel loss, the five stages that we've all been taught, isn't helpful to us right now. That's very limited. That was helpful. It was good with dealing with uh, terminal illness. But in this particular moment, we need something different. And our lens and where the church comes in and where we as clergy come in is to help people to look at the journey of grief through a lens of hope, not how is it dismissing that we're in need because our faith somehow is going to allow us not to feel this, but to acknowledge we're traveling in this road of grief. We acknowledge it. And then we really look at where we were, where we are right now, and where we believe that God is really bringing us to. You know, that place around the corner that we can't see, that's where hope is. That's where faith comes in, you know? So I want to just say that from that standpoint, just from this framework of, 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 uh, of hope. But, but you just said something very important. I, I acknowledge the hope, but you, you just mentioned another pandemic that is also going on, mm -hmm. which is the pandemic of violence against people of color. That's right. um, um, the murders of, of, of young uh, African-Americans, uh, the murders of, of, of uh, uh, Latinx young people, um, the violence against Asian Americans. Um, what do you tell the pastors of, of these communities of color who are not only losing, because they were also the hardest hit in this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So they have this, this, so now they've got a triple, right? They're triply affected. They've got the loss by novel coronavirus, Mm -hmm. um, hardest hit in their communities. They are losing, uh, they are dealing with the violence that their communities are dealing with, of young people with violence, uh, by gun violence in general, and by law enforcement in particular. And the regular stuff that's also spiking. Right. Um, and, and I would imagine that pastors and, 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 and church leaders in these communities at some point, because their children are also at risk, their family were at Absolutely. some point, they, they, must, they must get tapped out. At some point, they must feel, I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't, right. I can't, 
I can't bury one. I cannot bury one more person. I, mm. I cannot give encouragement or hope to one more person. I am tapped out, mm. right? What, what do you say to pastors in that position? Right. Oh my gosh, that's, I wish I had the answer, but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, and this, I, these are the answers I would give even at the very beginning of the pandemic when we had the lockdown. You know, when um, we, were, we were suffering such multiple losses at that point, the loss of security, the loss of financial security, you know, um, the loss of uh, social connectedness, you know, the loss of predictability and all that. And then now you add to it what you've just talked about. You know, it is important for each person to really devote every day some space to be able to acknowledge, to check in, to see where they are. That's really important. We cannot serve anybody else if we ourselves aren't taking care of ourselves. It's like that airplane analogy that we use often we hear that if you're on a plane and you have a child next to you or a family member and, and suddenly the air pressure drops, you know, that you need to be able to put on that mask in order then to be able to help somebody else. And so it's so important that we not lose how is it uh, uh, the focus in which we're not caring for ourselves? We have to be full of care for ourselves in the moment. That's the first thing I would say. Um, so we have to create space and time, either the beginning of the day or the end of the day. And both, I would suggest, where you're checking in with yourself and you recognize that, am I burnt out? Do I have compassion fatigue? Am I experiencing complicated grief? And to know and recognize that and to really take care of yourself, you know? Um, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that absolutely reach out and, 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 and work with a counselor, you know, because there's too much loss going on in your life and you can't go on. And the worst thing that can happen to us at this moment is, and we're seeing this a lot, by the way, is that people are dropping away from their call because they're so burnt out. They're so troubled by all of what's going on. They can't see an end in sight. And so as a result of that, they, they how is it, um, prematurely step away from their call. And that's not a good thing, you know? And so what I would say is that being full of care for yourself, recognizing if you're burnt out, passion fatigue, um, making sure that you see a counselor, for example, I would even suggest that you create a clergy support group if you can you know, um, where you're able to actually, how is it share with each other and support each other in it. Um, also educate your congregation or the people you serve that you too have feelings, you too are going through things and that together you all can be a community in which you all care for each other because this is a really difficult thing. The other thing is you have to turn off your devices. You can't keep listening and looking at television. You can't keep checking in your emails and sort of thing and really keeping yourself amped up because of what you see, you just can't. You have to trust that you have to set that aside in order for you to be able to have the calm and the space to connect with spirit, to be able to deal with the day-to-day -day things that will, you'll be confronted with. <clears throat> there are two things there that you said that, that, um, that connect with me. Uh, one of them is that um, fi find help or, or help help yourself before you help somebody else. We're so socialized to not do that, right? Uh, not only within our culture, we're socialized not to do that. Yes. We, 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 we're, we're made to feel that that's being selfish, 
but also as ministers, we're trained not to do that. Our, our training is go help, go help somebody. Um, so it, you're almost asking us to, to go against the grain of everything that we are to do that. Uh, but I think that that's very important because this is a long haul. This is a sort of, uh, this is a marathon. And to last the marathon, we, we have to take those moments. <clears throat> but the other thing that you said is about the devices. I remember um, a few years ago, I did a, a, a study on, on, on spirituality. And there was a study uh, that, I, that I read. Um, it was actually on the importance of maintaining greeneries in urban, in urban areas. But, but the, the person who wrote it was a neuroscientist. And he talked about the importance of resting, of, of resting. And he said that we, we have become such a connected society. We're so involved in our devices. We don't turn them off. Right. That we don't allow our neuro, neurological tissues to, to heal. So resting is important because it allows the, the glial cells that allows the, the neurological tissues to heal because they get bombarded. And, um, and as I read that study, I, I, I thought about the increase in dementia because we, we're not allowing our, our neurological tissues to heal. Yeah. And, and so I, I wonder if part of the, this complicated or this traumatic grief mm -hmm. is also part of that, that, that we don't give our neurological system, yes. much less our spiritual system, time to, to recover from the constant bombardment yes. of trauma, of, of grief and of sadness yes. um, that, that we encompass yes. uh, because we are surrounded by violence. We are surrounded by death in, the, in this constant way. Mm -hmm. There's so much demanding um, from us, um, how is it demanding our minds, our emotion, our heart, our breath right now? There's so much that it's really competing for that within us. And we know that with um, brain, what is it, neuroplasticity, that they're discovering that the brain itself, the brain cells just don't die. They actually can regenerate. They can, you, you, we're still producing new brain cells. And the importance of rest is so important. And from a spiritual place, it's, let's just add it. That's a Sabbath rest. Every day we need to take a Sabbath rest, no matter what's going on and trust that even though you're not taking care of something that God will take care of something. Let me just put that in there. You know, I have a, a, a beautiful, um, and it, it, it's not something I created, but I use it oftentimes with um, people who have experienced trauma. And it was, it's a strategy called the butterfly hug. And the butterfly hug is really easy to do. And it's just as, you, as, as it states, it's like a butterfly hug. And this strategy was actually developed by a woman by the name of Lucina Artigas. And she developed this strategy following Hurricane Pauline in Acapulco, Mexico, a category four storm that hit Mexico in 1998. Now imagine that back then she was doing this as a way of dealing with people um, who were experiencing trauma and she wasn't able to physically be there with them. So if you can, I'm gonna read to you a little bit of the instructions we give to people who are experiencing this um, trauma, or let's say distressful moments. What you do is you cross your arms over your chest so that the tip of your middle finger is placed below the collarbone with the other fingers covering the area below the connection between the collarbone and the shoulder. 
And then your hands and fingers should be as vertical as possible for the fingers to point towards the neck and not to the arms. And now you interlock your thumbs. And see, your thumbs form the butterfly body and your fingers outward are forming the butterfly wings. And so what you do is you close your eyes completely or partially looking at the tip of your nose and alternate hand movements like the butterfly wings. And you do it rapidly. When you're distressed, do this rapidly. You could do this in the car, you could do this in the bathroom, whatever. And you let your hands move freely and you breathe slowly and deeply. And while watching what goes through your mind and your body, such as your thoughts, your images, sounds, smells, feelings, and physical sensations, just move away from or judging your thoughts. Just, just keep on as if clouds are passing by. Just, just think about what's going on right now. Flap those wings until that passes. And believe it or not, that creates bilateral stimulation of the brain to help you process what you're going through. And that's called the butterfly hug. We can do this. And when I went down after Hurricane Maria and I worked with pastors on the under Puerto Rico and also the Bahamas, the butterfly hug was taught. And they have said that to this day, it's very helpful to them. So I wanna just suggest that. That is very, very helpful. Thank you. Are there any other rituals or, or, or things that you would suggest to a pastor who is dealing with a congregation that's in pain. Uh, we've talked about how the pastor can take care of themselves. Are there any suggestions you can give to a pastor uh, or a caregiver who's dealing with others? Yes. I know that we're a society in, in, in general that's so kind of, um, how is it, uh, avoidant of death. Imagine that we don't like talking about death and here death is, we're surrounded by death, right? We can smell death, let's just face it. So in some ways a, a pastor or a chaplain needs to be able to acknowledge with the congregation that death is around them, like you did today. That was so powerful as you did that, Lloyd, that to open it up, this is a reality. And that you help them, you guide them through an intentional process of grieving. You create a ritual. You know, maybe it could be that the congregation itself, you know, um, goes to the front, you know, to the altar. And of course, now we know that it's all done virtually most of it anyway. But let's say the idea is that they're, they're identifying their losses and they place it maybe in a cup, you know. And the idea is that you're going to help your congregation to identify the losses and then to help them forward them through the grieving. Okay, that's one. The other is that you can also invite your, con your congregants to seek the counseling they need to deal with the psychological and emotional distress that they're experiencing. It's great. And the other is that you remind them that through their service of prayers, right, that the Lord can create a restorative path for them, right, so that they are going to be praying their way into God's restoration, you know, pay attention to the children and the youth. Sometimes when we are dealing with all this distress, we forget about those young people and you need to help them through that. Um, they're the future of the church and they're watching us, you know. Um, the other is seek holy rest. As you were saying, that Sabbath rest is important and seek balance in your daily life. God is with them in crisis and disasters and desires to make things whole and new. God is still the same God on the throne. God is still desiring for us to rely upon God and to really seek the wholeness that is there for us. Um, and that 
affirming through suffering, we all have the opportunity to share the love, the power, and the grace of God. You know, that's, that's, that's I would say, in general. You know, um, and I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, through the lens of hope. Help those congregants identify where they were before COVID. What was life like? Help them picture that. Remind them of that. That's the first thing. That's what we call what was their location before COVID. And then the second thing I would say is, what is then as they journey through it, what is their dislocation now? They're living in a dislocated place right now. And in that, what, where is God in that? Where is God mm -hmm. in their dislocation? What is God asking of them to do in this dislocated place, which is a powerful place to be, you know? So, and remind them that the dislocated space is, state is a, is a temporary one. You're not gonna be in this forever, even though it feels like forever, right? And even if they're not able to access hope in that moment, you yourself can tell them, I know that you can't hold a hope, but I will hold and trust the hope for you until you're ready to receive it, okay? So you have location where they were before, dislocation where they are now, and now the location, the marker of relocation. The third marker is, and that's where you build and encourage hope in the survivor's life. So when their person is ready, invite them to dream about what the future holds for them, right? You've seen on TV lately about the vaccines. I can't wait to hold my grandchild, you know? That's what has kept people in hope, right? Like I'm waiting for my mamita who's 90 years old. I haven't seen her in 15 months and I am waiting to hold her, you know? She just turned 90, another birthday without me there with her right? You ask them why the future is important to them and where is God in planning for this future? Because remember, the hope is in God. And then you would say, sometimes in that space of accessing the hope for the future, you'll probably locate survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. There are people today that are living with survivor's guilt that somehow survived the multiple losses and they have to deal with their own guilt about that, their own shame about that, and you have to help them through it, right? Help them see where God was with them and their loved ones during those devastating times. And does that complicate the grief, the yes, survivor's God. guilt? Okay. Absolutely. We have a lot of survivor's guilt, you know? Um, like, for example, when I remember when I, when um, after Maria hit, I was thinking, oh God, my family's there in Puerto Rico and I want to help them. I, I don't know what to do. I, I just don't know how to help them. And I remember phone call, I couldn't even call them because remember at that time, there was no way of call contacting people. I had to wait a long time and the good Lord finally had me go down there to help. It was 16 months later to help pastors down there. And thank God I was able to go to really be able to help, you know, as we say, you know, nuestro pueblo. So this location, dislocation and relocation, this is the lens of, of, of hope and the way of conceptualizing grief, not from that medical Kubler-Ross stage, but rather from the lens of God and where God is and helping people really discern where is God in my life right now? Because I know God is here. Maybe I can't access God right now, but God is here. And that's what I believe you need to do for yourself, but also for your beautiful people that you serve. You're going to help them to do that too. 
Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yvonne, for this wonderful conversation. Uh, we're, we're going from grief to grief and grief, but we're ending up in hope. What, what, a, one, what a wonderful right. word to leave. Thank, thank so you so much for joining us in this podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And um, it's, it's, it's really, I will keep everyone in prayer. Truly, I will, because we're all going through this. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you. Take care. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.